Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm really happy that we can bring you this episode today because this is really one of the more remarkable conversations we've recorded. Uh, This isn't on the basis of professional experience or academic insight. This is on the basis of personal experience. Uh, Stephen J. Mandile is a a veteran. Uh, He's currently the the head of... um, the founder of Veterans Alternative Healing, uh, looking for alternative healing for veterans. And it's on the basis of his own experience that he became an activist. He came home from Iraq injured uh, and was basically prescribed a whole host of opiates by the VA, uh, which more or less took 10 years of his life. Uh, He describes that in the episode and and the darkness he went through, as he calls it. Uh, But then he talks about waking up. Um, He talks about um, finding cannabis as an alternative and Uh, that allowing him to get off opiates, um, and then how he became a very committed activist, and not only how he became an activist for his own cause, uh, for veterans, but how he started to engage uh, with social justice issues. And so a couple weeks ago, I met him uh, at a panel that was put on by Cannabis Community Care and Research Network, who we've interviewed on the podcast. And, uh, and then we just, uh, we started talking and I thought uh, this would be a very special story to bring to the BU community. I think it would be really good and he thought it would be really good uh, for young folks to be hearing this. So we're really happy to bring you uh, this conversation. Um, please just, you know, sit down, listen to it, uh, take in his experience because it's remarkable. Uh, it's really a story of transformation. Uh, thanks so much. We'll see you on the other side. I was um, just at the end of my contract for my eight years um, with the Massachusetts Army National Guard. And before that ended, we were put on stop loss. We got our orders that we were going to deploy in 2005. So I deployed on a stop loss and um, was injured when I was in Iraq. Severe spinal cord injury. Um, When I got home, I was... Uh, they diagnosed me with the severe spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, PTSD, depression, the things that all that, that come with those injuries and those experiences. And, um, you know, from, from, from day one, it was medication. It was morphine. And every step along the way home from getting medevaced from Iraq to Kuwait to Germany to Massachusetts, I mean, to um, the States was more medications. It was, mm. what's wrong with you? How can we make it stop? And the answers for everything was a pill. And there right. were so many pills. Um, and then when I, I realized it would be 18 to 24 months before I could get a um, in front of the Army Medical Review Board, I decided to sign my paperwork and go for it on my own with the VA. So I got back home. This was... Um, October 2005 was when I signed my papers to get out. Okay, so I just want to clarify. When you say sign the papers, it means to leave the service and then to uh, rely on the VA as your uh, medical treatment. Yes. That's what that means. I could have stayed in, gotten a medical review board, and gotten a um, a medical discharge. Okay. I waived that and just took my honorable discharge. Okay. Okay. And so... um, you said everything was medication, medication, medication. Yes. Um, and that was even, you're saying, during the transport process while you were in the Army. Yes. Um, what happens when you left? When you went to the VA, uh, what sort of treatment did they prescribe for you? Um, prescribe is the right word. It was more more medicine, more um, 
telling exactly what happened, getting everything, all my records straight, okay. um, making sure I had all my paperwork to transfer over to the VA. Right. Um, because as I was injured, I wasn't... Um, I was considered ambulatory, so there were those of us that could walk yeah. around and get around. Um, so when I finally got to Landstuhl in Germany, the hospital the hospital was full of the most severely injured. But there was a hotel right next door where they kept the ambulatory um, soldiers and Marines and everybody. And you know, even there was you know, I came out nine eight or nine months in Iraq to. A hotel room with a bunch of pills and twenty-five cent Heinekens in my room. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even even there, I started getting the feeling like this, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like this is the right path to go down. And then even once I got back to the states um, and was put into a what was called a wounded warrior unit. It was in okay. Fort Dix, New Jersey. It had nothing to do with wounded warrior project. Came okay. up before then, and um, it was just a barracks full of people that have been hurt um, and are awaiting their, their medical review board. But every night was pills, drugs, gambling, um, drinking, suicide. Mm-hmm. It was a nightly yeah. a nightly occurrence. Can you talk about the sort of state of mind, like that whole element of it when you come back here and you kind of expect to be kind of falling back on something that's going to support you, right? And you're just right. kind of there in purgatory almost. like. What is that feeling of suspension like? Uh, it is. I it wasn't. It wasn't a fear because fear was the place I just left. You know, there was yeah. nothing, nothing to be afraid of back home. It was just. Um, it was really different to try to go from a team mindset to an individual mindset, and just knowing mm-hmm. that I've got to take care of myself. Anything I do here, I have to do for myself. Um, even paperwork. You know, I would get four copies of my paperwork because I was just terrified of losing it because that's all I would hear about was if you don't keep this paperwork together, there'll be no record, you'll have no benefits, mm. all this stuff. So, I'm, And I'm just trying to figure out which way is up at the time. Right. Not to mention all these medications starting to, to work. So trying to like focus on a bunch of orders and directions at mm. the same time of trying to have your um, you know, professionalism of being a soldier and everything was yeah. was very difficult you know um even from my injuries i wasn't supposed to be really doing anything and i had uh i was written up as to just be on the first floor pretty much you know laid up in bed minimal activities and i go there and they're trying to put me in charge of people they wanted me to drive a van around drive people around they wanted me to uh, have a room on the second floor going up and down the stairs when I just left a place telling me don't do that. God. Were these VA? Is this, VA this was or? this was a still in the military. This was still, still in the army. military. Still yep. in the army. Yep. Okay. Waking me up at six o'clock in the morning to go run when I have a a injury that you know is my spinal cord and they're telling me not yeah. to, to do anything. Wow. So it was. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if those things made it worse or didn't make it worse I'll never know it really doesn't matter because yeah, it is exactly. what it is can't yeah. go back and change it but yeah. um, I noticed something that there was there was certain things missing from the process there was there was little zero to to little uh, compassion about anything mm. we were still it was still a number I was still uh, feeling like a statistic not like a, a person which was what I signed up for I wasn't surprised by it 
um, I just thought it would change when I got to the VA, and it right. didn't. Wow. So can you talk, so at the VA, I think you said something like you had 57 different prescriptions? Yes. So, something like that in five years? Can you talk about what they were trying to accomplish and if it was different at all <laughs> from what happened before? Um, it was mainly to get relief from pain and also from uh, anxiety, racing thoughts, yeah. um, just being able to, to relax and find mm -hmm. a, um, yeah. a level state of mind I could operate on right. um, but like yeah so probably halfway into it I was already at 57 different medications I tried uh, nine different opioids um, the last opioids I had taken from 2000 probably 2009 2010 to 2015 was a daily uh, daily regimen of fentanyl oxycodone Xanax, Ambien for sleeping, um, a few antidepressants, a few, uh, a few different medicines for my nerves, and also muscle relaxers. So it was basically shutting everything down, you know, right. trying to shut down your neural pathways, um, which just creates new ones that are, you know, it's a known side effect of a lot of these medications. Um, and then it was taking medications to counter affect the medications I was on. So I was taking, taking these medications that cause side effects that would make me have to take another side effect just because of that side effect. What about, I mean, the people that you were talking with and communicating with, like your peers, other people who are going to the VA for this kind of treatment, do you notice a lot, or did at the time, did you notice a lot of similar experiences or did you feel pretty much like they were treating you in a way that, that wasn't right? Um, so in the beginning when it was happening, I was... I was extremely uh, reclusive. I okay. wasn't really trying to talk to anybody else about my problems. I mm -hmm. felt, I still felt a lot of guilt from leaving my guys. I felt shame from, you know, feeling like I was beaten by the enemy. They got me to leave. I didn't get them to leave. Um, so a lot of it was just, you know, I really thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was mm -hmm. doing what the doctors told me. Um, but then shortly after, you know, I'd say five years into it, I had probably had three or four different primary care doctors, um, many different psychiatrists, psychologists, and I would have to start. It seemed like every nine months to 12 months, I'd be starting my whole process over again where I'd have a new doctor. I'd have to tell them everything from, from day one on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really hard to build any sort of rapport with any with any doctor. Right, um, And that led to me just really not trusting any of the doctors for a long time right so one of the things that we've covered on the podcast is we've talked about veteran service organizations yeah. what role did they play at that point um, did they reach out to you did you have to reach out to them um, do you think they offered something that that could have helped you or was it just really too hard because you were you know you're in this state of mind where you were reclusive and and you just couldn't find your way to get out there yeah a lot of um I never really connected with any of the other organizations. Yeah. Um, I tried going to a few while I was in the process of doing my um, my paperwork with the VA for my disability. Um, but it was I was a little turned off by the fact that I had just gone home. My first when I first did my paperwork by myself, I started off. You know, I got medevaced home, 
and I got my paperwork back saying I was disabled, but they were giving me 0%. And this was, I found out, common with, with um, veterans returning home. Everyone gets denied at first. So then I went from 0 to 10 to 30, and that took about, you know, three years. So I was just kind of like, this is, you know, luckily I had um, my wife, who was my fiance at the time, who were living in a um, in-law apartment, so I didn't have many bills. But I would go to these events put on by other organizations that wanted me to sign up and pay a dues, and I'm just like, I don't have enough, you know, I barely have enough money to put gas in the car to get here, so I don't know, right. you know, how much how much help I'm going to get for the money I'd have to pay for. Right. And the assessment, the, the 10 per, 0, 10, 30%, I mean, yeah. that determines... Um, you, your order in the triage, like when they're trying to serve nope. people, what is that? What did that determine in terms of benefits? So the the rating I'm talking about is your service connected disability. Okay. So that um, oh the, the, the compensation to which the, right. the degree to which the service itself affected your your disability. No, nope. so the service connected is, is there's service connected and non service connected, I believe, and um, so there's a compensation rate table. Okay. So at it at each level you get a different um, uh, monetary benefit um, and I think once you're over 50 you don't have to pay for your uh, medications at the VA so mm -hmm. it's the level of uh, compensation you get right. monetarily for right. your disabilities so um, I did end up meeting up with one group though and at the time they were the Vietnam veterans of Massachusetts um, up in Marlboro Massachusetts and they were the ones that really helped me with my paperwork mm -hmm. and I didn't have to mm -hmm. sign up for anything. They just wanted to help. Um, and I think it only took me another year before I got bumped right up to 100%. And I actually got my Social Security disability rating before I got my VA rating. But because right. they're both federal, if one is 100, the other one has to be 100. So mm -hmm. I was able to get Social Security, which I was being told was harder before I got the VA, but then once I got the VA, um, you know, I, even with that disability rating, it still feel like it was. A, you do get a different kind of level of care mm -hmm. when they know that you're 100 percent and fully relying on the VA. Um, I tried. I can't remember which year it was, but I had tried to find a way to sign up to get my own private health care, but at the time it was just too expensive, right. and I was trying to trying to better myself and, you know, make a better life for my wife. So it was, you know, mm -hmm. we're not going to do this in a, in a in-law apartment. So we're trying to save it for a house and, you know, do all the regular things that you're thinking of right. in life. You, you mentioned during the event, so we met at an event um, that was put on by the, the um, Cannabis Care and Research Network, Cannabis yes. Community Care and Research Network, uh, who we, who we interviewed on the podcast. And, um, you were talking about the stigma around marijuana. So you're on these tremendously powerful opiates yep. as prescribed by the VA. Yes. I mean, fentanyl is really powerful stuff. I mean, that's the stuff that when, when people uh, are addicted to heroin and they start developing some level, level, level of tolerance, they go to fentanyl. And so that's like really, really intensely powerful stuff. And you were saying there was, despite you know, all the stuff you were doing, there was still a stigma that you had in your mind around cannabis and what it could possibly do. Can you talk about right. that and where that comes from? Absolutely. So I think it was 2013. Um, 
you know, my wife was fed up watching me just deteriorate into, you know, a zombie pretty much. And I had already attempted a suicide and she had told me that she believed it was the medication. Uh, at the time she was working at um, Framingham Women's Prison as a family preservation coordinator. So any woman that came in that was a mother, mm -hmm. they would have to see my wife. And um, I don't know the statistics on it, but a lot of the women going in there were also on illicit drugs. So they're going through a detox and she would see the same kind of uh, traits that they were going through through their withdrawals that I went through pretty much every 20 hours. You know, as soon as my uh, as soon as my fentanyl start wearing off, I would get I would start feeling sick. It feels like you're coming down with the flu. Your body's just kind of shutting down because it just wants one thing. Um, and I, again, I never thought anything was wrong with it because my doctors are telling me I'm doing it the right way. This is what you have to do. Um, so to me, I was, I was doing the right thing. You know, there was the right medication. It was the legal medication. And when my wife told me she thinks I'd have some luck with cannabis, I was, I was blown away that she would even, you know, mention it. Mm. Um, when I was in the service, I was the retention and retainment NCO. So I was the one responsible for doing the urinalysis for the guys um, a lot of the times the guys that would fail the urinalysis were the same guys I was picking up that were AWOL. Mm. So I was just like, you want me to do what? Like, do, I, I, no way, you know, right. I can't believe you would suggest that. Yeah, yeah. so, <laughs> but, so you, you were the enforcer, you know, when you were in the service. Yeah. And so you just had this notion that like, you know, oh, wow, like this really just makes people, what, you know, lazy, irresponsible, yep. all the stuff that's, that's attached to it. Um, yep. And then... And she suggested to you. So your first reaction must have been just like, "What are you talking?" I was about? shocked. I'm like, yeah. "You telling me you want me to get better, but you just want me to start smoking weed?" I'm like, yeah. "All right, uh, I don't know." But then, um, just just her saying that, um, I don't know why I was able to wrap my head around and focus on it. But I started looking into what I was taking. Right. And I'm like, "Well, this is medical heroin. You know, I'm yeah. taking, I'm taking." Um, laboratory grade heroin instead of street heroin and what's really bad if i go from medical heroin to medical cannabis so that right. looking at what i was actually on because i never looked at it you know even though every month when i signed for my drugs and and got sent home with this like 50 page manual on on what they were i never looked at it you know never thought it was dangerous and at the time, I think my daughter was either one or two years old, and she I would have her help me put my fentanyl patch on. Like really? Because it was like a sticker. So I'm just putting it over. Mm. You know, at first I was doing it on my arms, like they said to, but then it was right over my heart, mm -hmm. and I put like two or three of them, four of them over my heart. Right. Um, and then I'm reading the directions saying, absolutely do not, you know, don't even throw this in the trash when you take it off. Flush it down the toilet, because if anyone oh. were to touch it, it could kill them. And I'm just like... I was like, my daughter put it on me, you know, like I, I was just blown away, absolutely wow. shocked. And then I'm starting to look around and I'm like, you know, I have this, I have this giant, um, 30 day pill dispenser on my nightstand next to my bed and my kids would pick them up and like shake them like a rattle, you know? And I'm thinking, wow, if any of those ever fell out and my kids ever picked up a pill, you know, they would OD and die. But here I have, you know, then I, I replace it with marijuana and I'm like 
if I drop a bud, if I drop any flower on the ground, it's not going to do anything to them if they try to eat it because they'll probably hate it and it's not activated yet. Yeah. And even if I were to drop a piece of a cookie or a brownie or whatever edible that might look um, like a kid wants to consume it, I wouldn't have to worry about them dying. You right. know, I would rush them to the hospital and, and make sure they're okay, but I would never have that thought in my head like, my kid's going to die because, or, you know, they picked up a pill off the ground and I right. don't know what this is going to do. Um, so just that, the, the, I hear all the time, oh, you know, this stuff's targeted to our kids, is this, is that. It's In my house, you know, cannabis is one of the safer things compared yeah. to all the other medicines I had. And it's, there's things in my medicine cabinet now and under my sink that are more dangerous for my kids to get into right. than, than cannabis. So, um, yeah, I mean, my wife is the one that really planted the seed <laughs> of, uh, of, of trying this. Yeah. But once she did and I, I started reading up on it, I, was, I couldn't get it fast enough. What did you feel about the... Because, I mean, it seems to me like the whole problem you got into um, is is a result of authority that that led you astray because you were saying the whole time that uh as as, from this perspective it's very easy to sit here and go wow fentanyl like that's crazy right but from that perspective i mean you had the rational assumption like i should do what my doctors are saying right and so there's this whole problem of authority leading you astray how what was your feeling when you finally started coming to these realizations and you were like wow like i've been relying on a medical system that has in a sense, been giving me something that could kill me for this many years, you know? So, of course, one of the first emotions with realizing that was just anger, real, a lot of anger, um, a lot of confusion, because here I am thinking I'm doing everything right, because I'm listening to my doctors, but looking further into it, I'm not listening to my doctors, I'm listening to policy, you know, and, Mm. and at that point, it was like, well, the policy is I'm doing what I'm told. I'm a good, a good veteran, a good person, doc, you know, following doctor's orders. But as soon as I switch and try to, would try to explain to them how cannabis was helping, it was, well, that's against our policy. You know, you're actually a criminal in our eyes. So it's kind of like, you know, I can't, I realized that it wasn't going to be a doctor, it wasn't going to be any sort of nurse or any policy that was going to help me um, become the best version of myself I could be. It was really the people, myself and the people I cared about, that were going to be able to do that. Right. You know, my, your wife, my wife, yeah. parents, uh, sister, people that knew who I was before that and mm-hmm. could see such a difference. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm 40 years old now. My parents are from a generation that you know still they kind of. Um, they want nothing to do with with cannabis, um, and it was really hard for them to see that it was making it was helping me get better. Right. Um, so I was able to break the stigma a little bit with them and a few um, a few others that had known me before, and just seeing the you know the the coming back to life thing, which was also. Um, right crazy difficult itself right so we were talking before uh we went on the air about um about what what life was like while you were on these drugs and you said something really remarkable which was that you don't remember your 30s uh you basically just don't remember your 30s because you were were on all of these drugs and 
then there's this whole process of coming off. So can you talk for a second about, I mean, what living life was like apart from the, right. the struggles of the med- like the medical difficulties, like just trying to live life under the spell or the haze of all of these drugs, and then what it was like coming out of that and seeing the world again for I'm sure what it felt like the first time. Right. So I'd say, you know, maybe in about four or five years into my medications was where I really started to um, get in the mindset of, I don't care. I don't care about anything. Um, I don't know if you'll have to edit this, edit this out, but in it. the military, it's, you know, zero fucks. You know, I give zero fucks. I literally didn't care. I, there was nothing, um, you know, I didn't feel bad for anybody. I didn't feel bad for myself. There was so much... Uh, self-hatred that it, it it was all I was I was just angry and and hateful no one could tell me anything no one could help me out um, I was pretty much just shut off from hearing from anybody else because it just seemed like such little problems that people were dealing with and I had it in my mind that you know I'd seen and, and been around people that have dealt with so much more I had dealt with more anytime I would talk about my injuries it would be, oh, well, you know, my back hurts too. And I'd be like, well, my back doesn't just hurt. And I got tired of even saying that. Mm. So I think it was, um, you know, I'd spoken to my doctor. We, I was, It took me five months to taper off of all my medications while using uh, medical marijuana when it was finally available. And I was out in my driveway one day getting ready to... Um, to shovel some snow. It had been, you know, 10 years since I had done it myself. We had Boy Scouts come over and help do it. We had people come over and plow. Um, but I was like, all right, you know, I'll just do it. See how much... I don't want to do what I used to do, so i got to try to do something new. So I went inside, uh, smoked a joint, went back out to my driveway, and about an hour later, I turned around and I did the whole driveway. I only planned on doing enough to get the car out of the driveway. And I was just like, holy cow, you know, like... I had gone from not being able to do anything really for myself to just finishing that. And looking back, it was such a, a tiny achievement. But at the time, it was, it had been, like I said, it had been 10 years since I was able to do something I could feel proud of. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't even get in my house before, you know, to tell my wife what happened. I, I called her on the phone from the driveway, you know, out of my tree. Like, I can't believe I just did it. I got to go help. And I had this kind of... Um, to even call it an awakening but things started to I started having feelings again mm-hmm. um, really hard to deal with emotions um, really anything with anger because it was based around me just wanting to to die mm-hmm. and then I went back you know old old feelings prior to 2005 started coming back I started feeling like a human again I wasn't a zombie anymore so I started, um, it was really tough to try to deal with, am I, is this a regular reaction? Is this an overreaction? Is this not enough of a reaction? Mm. Um, because anything I would see on TV was just, was I believed everything I saw on TV. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't having any personal experiences anywhere. I would just see something on TV and just hate it. You know, mm. like I, I, we started so, talking about... The Black Lives Matter movement, because I think it was around the same time when that was really ramping up. And I was just like, I would see it on TV and be like, we all matter. I fell into that trap of all lives matter instead of just really looking into it. Um, I remember feeling guilty about that. So I started being like, uh, 
I, I realized when I was out talking about cannabis that I learned so much more just from being around people. I'm trying to talk to them about cannabis, but they're telling me they don't even know what opioids are yet. Mm. So I'm explaining that to them. And then I'm seeing these other things that, um, that it bothered me. And I driving into Boston, see some BLM signs and shirts. So I was trying to figure out a, a way I could reach out and, um, and learn more about that. Um, I was, I was trying, I was meeting with politicians a lot and luckily at the time I met a city councilor at the time, um, Tito Jackson, mm. who is such an amazing guy with an amazing story from, from his roots to, you know, being adopted and, and having to deal with, with uh, a very unique, difficult life, getting over a lot of hurdles himself. And, um, we, we immediately had this connection. Um, I think he knew my sincerity of really wanting to help and, and be involved. So I started uh, donating, not donating, but volunteering my time um, at events in Roxbury, getting you know deep into the, into the neighborhood. And I think it was, I was doing a Thanksgiving turkey drive and I was, I was the guy at the door doing security in, uh, in the middle of Roxbury at the Reggie Lewis Center and I'm, uh, I'm maybe one of a handful of of white guys there or white people there and even the people walking in they're like aren't you afraid and I'm like afraid of what Roxbury I'm like I was, afra- I was a little afraid of Baghdad when I was walking yeah. around there but yeah. I'm not really too afraid of Roxbury I mean who's going to be mad at me you know while I'm trying to help out Yeah, and it was just such a a welcoming community. Um, I ended up doing a, a toy drive um, that Christmas to help out a family, a few families in Roxbury for Christmas. And I was just, I was so bothered that I was, uh, my opinion was so off and so wrong. So, so what you're saying is there was, during the time of being on the medication and being in that isolation, you were just kind of, you were you were disconnected from any community that could tell you otherwise from from what you were hearing on television or what was sort of being delivered to you and fed to you, right? Right. And so, the power, I guess, like we were talking about beforehand, was like actually just like going and meeting people and experiencing yeah. it and kind of getting over a, a fear or an anger or, or something in there. Um, so one of the, the one of the things I decided early on was I'm gonna do whatever I feel is very uncomfortable for me. And mm. one of the biggest discomforts for me was having to talk to people. <laughs> mm. So I put myself right out there, like I said, I stood in front of the state house for basically every day for almost a month. Well, during business hours of the state house, I stood out there with my signs, talking to people. Even, I even um, had the police call on me because I jumped up on top of the Fox 25 news <laughs> van. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, but, um, and the, the people in the van called the police. The police showed up, but then when I told them I knew a few Boston police, they they didn't care. They yeah. let me stay up for a little longer. Um, people walking by were taking pictures and filming. Someone even uh, posted it on Facebook, and I, I was able to share it through there. Um, but it was just such a weird experience, and I, you know, I called my wife because she knew what yeah. I was doing, and I'm talking to her. I'm like, I don't know if it's because my... Um, 
my edible wore off <laughs> or maybe it's just kicking in but I have this feeling and I'm going to go up on top of this van so if I get arrested I want you to know that I'm not trying to do anything yeah. I'm just pissed off that like no one's paying attention because there was something else going on all the media was there and I'm standing here which what I thought was pretty important because I'm trying to talk about opioids I'm trying to talk about veterans veteran suicide yeah. and, and cannabis and no one was paying attention right so it was kind of like, all right, well, you know, time to like uh, not up or shut up kind of moment. And if I want something done, I'm going to have to try to do it. Mm. So um, it was it was really based off of doing what I have, hadn't been doing and, and really just trying to make myself as uncomfortable, turn my weaknesses into my strengths, mm. which which ended up surprisingly working. <laughs> yeah. to some extent because um, I met a lot of people who you know I, I wouldn't have met otherwise standing out there met a lot of great people um, I learned so much and it was able to help me feel you know feel better about myself as well right. because you know people still want to help me I still I was still able to see myself as who I thought I was when I was so hateful right so can, can we like Focus on the transi- transition one more time yep. um, to, to talk about how, when did you start conceiving of yourself as an activist or as an advocate? Because um, it's one thing to sort of overcome the, the fear and anger and sort of start meeting people in a community. I mean, that's, that's the first step, of course. Yep. But at what point did you say, all right, well, I've got to commit myself to doing X, Y, and Z things to, to make change happen? So I'd say that was, okay probably June of 2016 mm. when I decided to sleep out in front of the state house for a week. Mm. Um, and it was like, I, I can't, I can't quit until I get what I'm looking for. And at the mm. time I was looking for a meeting with the governor. Mm. Um, I felt like he's, he, he's the one in Massachusetts that has the say on things. I need to be able to talk to him. Um, and I thought I had gotten that meeting at the end of the week um, of sleeping on the bench right across the street, uh, sleeping in my truck, parked out in front. Um, his security team came out and told me, you know, that they were going to set up a meeting. So I, I was thrilled. I, I, a week of, am I doing the right thing? Is this taken away from my kids? Am I going to piss off my wife? All these different things. But in that week was when I realized it because people I didn't know started uh, following me on Facebook and also coming out and, and meeting me and standing with me and holding signs. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is turning into something. Um, and getting that and realizing that before I did that, I was just another, I was just another bird chirping, you know, yeah. outside the state house. There was nothing special about anything I was doing. Right. Um, but... I committed to getting attention. I committed to not just being another voice. So I, I, I did that in order to be taken seriously. You know, I thought, all right, either they're going to think I'm crazy yeah. or they're going to think I'm committed. Either yeah. Yeah, I'll go with whatever one because right now um, they don't know. You know, they don't know me. So and, I just had to do something. And that just came out of a place of being just sort of at the end of the line. It was like you just needed to, to get the, your message across. Well, at that time it was... Um, it had been nine months, close to nine months since my 
last opioid dose. Mm. But this was June, so I went back to the VA because I was, I'd gone from all these medications that I think me and my wife did the math out to everything I was taking was probably between eight to $10,000 a month. So I was a pretty good customer of the VA system. Mm. Um, And I went from that to cannabis, which I now had to somehow pay for myself. So June came around and my daughter's birthdays are, you know, a day apart. So I went back to the VA and I said, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. I need to have medicine, but I'm not going to put that in front of my, what my kids deserve. My own doctor, who had told me I was her first patient in 20 years, her first patient she knew of in 20 years at the VA, working there to get off of the medications I was on. Oh my God. About 20 minutes later, I walked out of the VA with more fentanyl. They wrote me another prescription. The only answer they had for me of money for presence and medicating myself was to send me home with the medication I had just got off. Wow. So as soon as you overcame something that a lot of people yep. don't overcome, they tried to throw you like right back on. Yep. So I went right back. You know, I, I, I put, so after nine months of being off of everything, I put my, I put another dose of fentanyl on me right across the street from, from the state house. Like I went back on my fentanyl literally in front of the state house. Wow. And, and so... You were trying to talk to the governor. What was your message? If, if you know, supposing you got your FaceTime, because at this point yep. you didn't know you were going to get your FaceTime. What, when you were out there, what were you thinking about saying to him? Yeah, this was this is rough too because I now being able to look back, I wasn't ready to come to him with anything. I had no solution. I just had the problem, and I felt like I knew something. So at that time in my head, I was just convinced that I could get him to understand that cannabis can be used as a replacement for those medications and i was seeing on the tv you know everything about opioids opioid crisis an epidemic with the overdoses um you know i'd seen people overdose i knew people that died from overdosing so i felt like i was very connected to it in a way that would be easy for him to see or anybody else to see that i'm not just you know i'm not a doctor who gets paid to do this and and caring for people that way. I was someone that not only is is uh, affected by it from losing people, but I was affected by it because I went through it. I went on it. And that's the one thing you can't, no matter how good I get with words or or anything, I can't explain to a person the darkness of of addiction and of especially of, of opioids because it really does rewire your brain. I didn't care about anything. I didn't I didn't go by a clock to figure out what time of day it was. I went by my the the timer on my pill dispenser beeping, knowing that you know it's time to take another pill. Mm-hmm. I didn't care. It was just when's my next pill. Um. So yeah, at, the, at that time, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't have. I'm glad it didn't happen because I don't know if everything else that I've been able to accomplish since then would have happened. Um, if I right. if the accomplishment came short. Um. So the, the message for him was just, you know, listen to it. Yeah. Instead of saying, I, just, I was just hearing negativity come out about about right. medicine. And it was like, well, if I can't take this, then there's got to be something else I can take. Right. And what's working for me is something that you're out publicly 
yeah. kind of shaming and stigmatizing and saying it's a gateway and it's a bunch of different things where it's been nothing like that for me. Right. So then going from there, moving forward, um, how did you start learning the lessons that you needed to learn in order to, to talk and make those presentations that you needed to? And then also, I think you said that was June of 2016. So it was only a, a, a few months later. I mean, um, the latter half of that year that it was on the ballot. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> how did that, you know, shape your activism and how did you target that ballot initiative to, to help raise support? So fortunate for me, um, a lot of the people that were working on the ballot initiative worked near the state house, mm -hmm. and I had run into them um, without even knowing anything about them or who they were. Um, I don't know how many people gave me their business cards and phone numbers, and I wasn't interested in any of that. I wasn't looking to meet people or anything like that. I just wanted to get my message out there. There were people like trying to give me money and stuff, and it was that was, that was not my intent, never my intent. I didn't even think of um, myself as an activist or activism um, until I ran into another, to one of the people I met again and really wanted to talk with me. So I had a meeting with the people for Yes on Four, and they wanted, you know, I felt like, you know, if anyone's going to get it, these people are going to get it. And our messages really lined up with if we can remove the stigma mm -hmm. of of it by making it so uh, of not not just available but really educating people on it because of the before the election you know most people were just they weren't even aware that it's legality and being illegal is because of emotion it had nothing to do with with any sort of science or any sort of uh, bad things happening, it was just the the drug war from the seventies, the ending of legal cannabis in the thirties, and the and the reasons when people, if you look into why it happened, a lot of it had to do, I'd say all of it in the thirties had to do with racism, mm -hmm. and then again in the seventies again it had to do with racism and kind of like. I don't know if the word is, this is a word, but elitism, mm. where it was just you know if you're not with them, you're a hippie, you right. know. <laughs> well, so and so that that the interesting point about that is when you start to encounter other people um, that are doing activism and you realize the way the arguments come together for yes on four, um, how did that connect in your mind to your experience um, with with Black Lives Matter, um, kind of overcoming your stereotypes about the movement and learning and meeting people a few years later now you're meeting people who who you know you guys are mutually dependent the the social justice component of legalizing uh, marijuana ties in with the importance of making it available to veterans right yes so luckily again thanks to tito <laughs> gave me a little bit of empowerment back when i had started because uh I laugh about it. He still laughs about it, but you know, he says I'm woke. <laughs> so I felt like with at least him saying that I could go out and talk about it and not just be another white guy talking about, we need to do this for minorities. You know, like I got it. I got a crash course in what it meant to be and what's happening in those communities. So not only did I get to uh, talk about it affecting you know, minorities, I talked to the minorities. I was talking to people and finding out, yeah, you know, this person 
has a uncle or son that's locked up because they had, you know, a, a little bit of marijuana on them, mm-hmm. and it was just, but. I know plenty of other white people that never had any sort of problem with it. And I was just, I was blown away. And I felt, I almost felt like it was a, uh, I took it on as like a personal responsibility to, to make sure I talk about all of these things. And throughout the whole process of not knowing what I was doing, I really felt, you know, I'm not religious. I guess I'm a little spiritual, but everything kind of felt like there was an invisible hand, like pushing and Mm -hmm. getting me to, to do things and a lot of that came with the you know be getting out of the comfort zone anytime I could question myself I'm like I really don't know it's like well do it right you know if you don't know go find out do it it's the only way you're gonna know mm-hmm. so what I was feeling for myself as as being woke was also uh, seen by any other person that I was talking about you know I don't want to be talking about your community and never having been there and telling you how good or bad it is. Right. So I, I I was I felt I felt a lot of satisfaction. I felt a lot of pride in being able to have a part in saying and bringing out and to light this this the discrepancies of how many, you know, one third three times the arrest rates, you know, I'm sorry. For minority groups, you're three times more likely to go to jail for for cannabis than than whites, and I just think that's ridiculous. Right. So because when I was in the, when you're in the military, you're all green. You know, right. There's, we we are we've got to be one of the most diverse groups or segments of society that there are in the military. Right. So <clears throat> then, 2016. The initiative passes, but some of the things we were talking about at the event that we met at was that there's there's still going to be significant problems to access um, for, I mean, it's, I mean, frankly, it's just, it's going to be too expensive, right? right. Like, when, when you have to put in the capital to get a storefront and sell marijuana, it's going to be too expensive to access. And so, uh, can you talk about some of the issues that you're dealing with post-referendum and what yeah. you're trying to advocate for? Like, what what... If you were to have the meeting with the governor today, what is it that you'd be saying? Um, so I do understand the need for for people that come in with capital. Right. Um, I don't want I also you know I don't want to seem unrealistic that you know people would be like oh I've got a thousand dollars I can open up my own place yeah. stuff like that because there's so many other uh, details of it that it's it's very expensive. But I do believe. I mean, and in Massachusetts, having been in a lot of different places in this in this country, everything is more expensive here. Mm-hmm. You know, our dollar doesn't go as as far here. So I want to make sure that all of these groups that have been so oppressed by by what we're doing are not only having a seat at the table, but are sitting at the head of the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I think out in Colorado, there's only one dispensary owned by a person of color. Yeah, I remember. I think I think it was Tito Jackson who mentioned that at yeah. the event, and that that blew me away. And I think one of the questions we didn't answer at the event, or I don't think I wanted to ask, but I don't think we had the time, was um, how like you said you said the way you phrased it just now is really important. It's not just a seat at the table, but but that groups have a seat at the head of the table. Right. Like, how does that happen? Like, where where is this, you know, table? Like, how do you involve people <laughs> in um, in the, 
the process to the extent that they can influence policy that's happening on Beacon Hill. Yes. So I know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great groups out there, a lot of great people. Uh, I just want to say even even having um, Shaleen Title on the Cannabis Control Commission is a seat at the table. Uh, I mean, it's huge. She's a woman. She's um, of Indian descent. And having her there is is crucial. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a lot of different groups. Um, I think it's the MRCC, the Massachusetts Recreational Cannabis. Commission. I'm not sure if it's com- I have community. I'm not sure what, the, what it is. I'm not good at memorizing things. But um, they're run by a group of, uh, I think, recent college graduates, or if not students that are still in college that are doing a lot of work with... Um, Students for Sensible Drug Policy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a, f- a few. I don't. I don't like using names, but they're all the three people heading it are people of color, young, and I. I'm. I love seeing that. I love that they're empowered enough and they're taking it as their responsibility um, to make sure that people are aware of what's going on, but they are they're influencing what's happening and I, I hear too many times these people will show up at these meetings and complain about things but i wish that the question were asked back well what is it that you're are, what, what are you doing for everybody then you know because a lot of people just want to complain and and throw eggs at it and one of the things that stuck with me through military training was if you're going to come up and and bring up a problem it's your job to bring up a solution too. Don't come to the table just complain about things. Take it upon yourself to to get it going. If you you know, I do that with everything. I'm something I really live by. It sounds like the evolution from that time. The first time you wanted to you know meet with the governor, yep. you had the problem. You didn't quite have the solution, but I mean, it seems like you've developed over over time to to have solutions to present, right? Right, and I mean that's how things get done. We can't just you know, complain yeah. about things and and people have to understand like, yeah, if you want something to change, it's going to be uncomfortable because yeah. you're going to have to change something you're doing and yeah. that's not going to be comfortable. I, yeah. I think a lot of a lot of the problems we have nowadays is people's comfort levels. Everyone's so yeah. comfortable um, throwing sling and mud on, online, on social media and, and thinking like that helps, thinking that Thinking that liking a post actually helps something, it's, it does nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're sharing news articles and all that, you're just helping the people that wrote the articles. You're not helping any sort of progress. Right. I want to come back real quick before we close it out. Um, just to, I, I know we referenced the fact that there are going to be problems to access even when the brick and mortar is open. Can yep. we go into a little more nitty-gritty, like, like just so listeners understand that you know what the what the what the barriers to access are going to be, mm-hmm. and um, what the issues are concerning you know a black market versus that people already have relationships with and already buy in right. versus opening up a new market. Yeah, so that's that's one of the toughest things that it's going to take a lot. We have to. It's not going to take a lot. We have to teach, you know, the system about what's going on because they've done nothing but uh, crucify the the illicit market in saying of everything how bad it's doing but in all honesty without the illicit market I wouldn't be able to get my medications you know I'm 
I'm still 100% disabled veteran, so I don't have any money really for healthcare that I can afford to use. Just getting my referral as a patient, mm-hmm. uh, it's at least $200 to get my referral from a doctor. Then it's another $50 to the DPH. So there's $250 off the bat for someone just to consider becoming a, a legal patient. Um, and then to go even to a medical dispensary now, I, I still can't afford it. You know, you're looking at anywhere between 15 to $25 a gram, which is, which is absurd to me. Um, I'm myself I'm putting together a program for uh, disabled veterans so there's a, a better access point for us because it's really hard to justify taking food off your table, taking, you know, things that you think you may deserve and having to just use that for medicine instead when you know, like I know, if I wanted an easy couple months of being able to save money, I could just go back on my opioids because that's the easy way to do. That's the legal thing to do, you know, and and it's it's right by their right. policy. So there, and that's just the medical. You know, we got into recreational, and the taxes on everything is going to be that much greater. And they talk about they don't want to bring the prices too low to to mess with you know to to have it go back you know what you buy in the store to just turn it over onto the street. There is a huge gap <laughs> of prices, you know, where you could get grams for, you know, maybe $5 to $10. I mean, and then an ounce for maybe $200. If you go on an ounce at a dispensary, you're looking at probably over three, $300 to $400, wow. which is ridiculous. So you can't tell me that there's no room for, you know, um, programs for people with hardships you know they offer i think 10 or 20 percent off now but for me and for other people that are coming off these drugs that are so much stronger i was when i was going to dispensaries i was spending about 800 dollars a week mm. just for flour just for wow. two ounces of flour and that you know that's not ideally how i'd like to be able to get by it i don't want to have to uh inhale my medicine i have a father just getting over just going through having a lung removed from lung cancer and I don't want to go down that path either so I don't have the option to do it the preferred way the safer way for myself um, so I'm just I'm really hopeful I keep telling I keep hearing that these prices are going to come down and we'll be able to compete with uh, you know other states but just looking at even I think it's Oregon where they have $50 pounds because of the outdoor um Accessibility they have that we don't have, but I don't think that should be. Oh, we can't. We don't have a good season, so we can't charge less. I don't right. think that's right either. Yeah, the the price point's going to be a real, uh, a real tough thing, and and I think having it too high is just going to turn people away, and they're not going to come here. I want to make it so, you know, veterans that come vacation here, or anyone that comes vacation here that needs medicine doesn't have to now go to the rec market to be able to buy medicine and be taxed just because of an imaginary line, you know, right, right. especially we're veterans where we, we, there's, there's no, we defended the whole country right. and another country in a dangerous place. And now I'm going to tell me I'm a criminal because I just drove from my house to my VA because I go to Providence in Rhode Island. I'm a criminal if I cross the state border 
with my medicine. But I'm not a criminal if I cross the border with their medicine, which is killing everybody. Right. So there's there's, there's just so much to it. Thank you. I mean, like, I just want to say thank you. I know you share your story, like, as a part of your your activism and stuff like that. But, I mean, thanks for taking the time to share it with a college-age audience who I think, think, you know, they're going to be as blown away as I was when I heard you speak at the event. Um, And it, it really ties together a lot of the issues we've talked about from, you know, veterans getting access to health care to opioids um, and then and then also activism I mean that's a very central component of all the stuff we do so um, thanks for spending the time I really appreciate it thanks I'm, uh, I'm, I'm that's one of the things I want to focus on with uh, you know your generation look it, it does come down to you doing it only would tell you that you can't do it I laugh when people tell me they can't do it I'm just like you're just projecting you know yeah. you can't do it you can't even begin to, to think of your way out of it so so be active and always do it knowing that there's there's someone going through worse than you like that sometimes I've got I'm inspired by so many other veterans that are going through and have gone through so much more than I have and there's no quitting so I just think of you know I gotta do it for them I've gotta also do it for the people who gave and sacrificed everything and their families that are left here because I can spend 10 years doing nothing and those people would give anything for two minutes with the person they lost. Right. So it really goes back to, you know, living a life of purpose and and never being stuck in that pity party and woe is me. Get out and do everything. Take the responsibility of it and 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 follow it through to the end. podcast listeners this is kobe from the common thread podcast i hope you enjoyed that conversation that you learned from it Uh, i certainly did it was a very uh, special conversation to get to have i'm thankful to uh, mr mandile who was able to come over to boston university to record the episode Uh, i expect to see him at the uh, cannabis community care and research network events again Uh, if you want to go to those you can uh, you can contact us over here at the common thread podcast and we can get you student scholarships Uh, That aside, I just wanted to say if you want to listen to more episodes of our podcast, I'm not sure where you're listening to this, but you can find it uh, on BUCommonThread.com or you can go uh, to uh, the iTunes store where you can find it under The Common Thread Podcast. I think the article, The, is important for searching it. And uh, and finally, I wanted to say um, I'm the co-founder, one of the co-founders of the podcast, and uh, We're looking to recruit people on the team. So if you think you'd be interested in having these kind of conversations, definitely uh, look at the Howard Thurman Center website and email Pedro Falci at pcfalci at bu.edu and uh, consider joining the team because we are looking to uh, build a team that's strong, that can keep this program alive after uh, after I graduate. So uh, thanks so much for listening to this episode. And until the next time, we will keep looking for the common thread.